The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Luke chapter 17 verse 1 says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, the redeemed people of Christ, gather together in your presence and before your word this morning. Our heads bowed now. Lord, may that be reflective of the posture of our heart as we look at your word. May you change us. May you lord over us as your spirit moves and and combines with the word given and molds us into the image of your son. May you have your way with us. May you till the soil of our hearts even now. And may this seed that you want to plant within us produce great fruit for your glory. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. We're going to be going intentionally short this morning. Normally, a teaching that I'm giving up here, my notes are usually anywhere from eight to ten pages long. Today, I have three. Three whole pages. Not that I can't find a rabbit trail along the way, but we're going to intentionally go short because we're going to spend some time with the Lord in communion and in worship and in prayer at the end of the service this morning. So we need to dive right in. A couple things I want to bring to your attention and keep you uh, aware of as we dive into this text. First of all, we here at Heritage believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We do not believe that this is just words that were collected. We don't believe, oh, these are the words that some guy wrote down and then he did it, gave it to this person, he gave it to this person, he gave it to this person. So who knows if this is really God's word or not, any of those kind of things. If you want to talk about that, we can have coffee and talk about why we believe that. But just to, to keep things short, we believe that here on the pages of this Bible are the words of the almighty creator God. And I want, I want the heaviness of that to hit you for just a second. Like the words that went, let there be light and same words, same voice, same spirit. In other words, we should approach the scripture with the same kind of awe 
that understands that these are the, the words of the creator who used words just to speak things into existence that, that weren't even were before that. That's a powerful thing, amen? And, and that being the case, we also, we, we want to let these words lord over us, not the other way around. Meaning that we want to approach the word that this is our king, this is our Lord who has said these things and therefore we are submitted to them and we seek to understand what he is saying to us rather than us lording over the words and going, well, I'll make them say this or I'll make them say that or we'll skip this because we don't like this part. No, 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 we, we understand this is the word of God. Therefore, we must be submitted to this because he's, he's God, amen? This is a big deal. That being said, there's some things in here that are not the inspired Word of God. No, no, no. Don't freak out on me yet and go, I knew he was one of them liberals. <laughs> oh, he's one of those that goes, well, this isn't really what God meant. This was No, no, no. There are things in here that are not the inspired words of God. In particular, it's the numbers. Do you guys know that? We've talked about this, I think, recently. When these things were written down by Luke back in the day, God inspired him to write them, but he did not say, okay, Luke, take your pen, write a one. Got it. Now write, and he said to the disciples, and he said to the disciples, now write a two. I'm on it, two. Three's next. Oh, you're quick, Luke. Gotcha. All right. That's not what happened. Luke wrote as the Spirit inspired and led him. Now, years later, as translators got these big blocks of just text that didn't even have punctuation in them, they were being helpful and saying, okay, let's, let's find ways of kind of taking this maybe by subject and breaking it apart a little bit. We'll insert some chapters, and it'll be a helpful tool for us to be able to see how the conversation, the flow of writing's going, for us to be able to break it down as we're studying it. And in the vast majority of cases, they were very helpful in doing that, but every once in a while they got to a place where they sort of made a mistake. And I think here in verse 3 is one of those, because verse 3 should actually start after the word your yourselves. It's the words, pay attention to yourselves, belong to what's being said in verses 1 and 2 as much or more than they do in what is following. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break the text up. We're going to look at verses 1, 2, and half of 3. Then we're going to look at half of 3 and 4. And then we're going to go through the end and then spend some time with the Lord thinking about, processing, and even doing business with the Lord with regards to what he's saying to us in these words. Because after all, if it is the actual word of God, it's at least worth some time considering what do we do with this? Amen? So verse 1, and he said to his disciples, pause. Remember what's going on. This is super important right here. As we've been going through this text at this point, Jesus is teaching his disciples, but there's others around. There's these guys called scribes, Pharisees, rabbis, the religious leaders of that day that are in earshot most of the time as he's talking and teaching his disciples. Now, most of his interactions are directly with his disciples because Jesus is now headed towards the cross. He's headed to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission that he's been called to do. And so he's teaching his disciples because he's saying, guys, you're going to carry on the mission after I'm gone. And it's going to be really difficult when you get there. There's things you're not going to understand. And, and it's kind of like this time where he's really focused on raising up these guys that are going to continue this work after he goes. And the Pharisees are there, and he tends to engage with them, but usually because they're engaging with him because they don't like what he's saying. 
And they don't like what he's saying because Jesus is teaching about a kingdom that is absolutely opposed to the kingdom that they love. And that plays in big time to what's actually being said right here in this text. So, with that in mind, he says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Amen, church? You don't have to be a Christian very long to understand. Temptations to sin are sure to come. In other words, it is a veritable given. You will be tempted. It's a given. But it's not exactly a given today in our day and age to understand what that even necessarily means. I mean, where I grew up and when I was younger, especially in the Bible Belt area there, if I talked about temptations to sin, everybody kind of knew what I was talking about. Everybody had been to church at some point. Everybody had learned about God and learned about the Ten Commandments and learned about all these things at some point. That's not as common today. So it'd be important to us to understand this, under, this thing called sin. Now, that's a big subject. We could talk about all sorts of things that are sins, but maybe here's something that would be helpful for us as we're considering this. Every single sin that there is can be broken up into one of two categories. Every sin there is, no matter what it is, whether it's an external expression or an internal attitude, the root of it, what's really happening in that sin can be broken down really into one of two categories. The first category is idolatry. And idolatry um, is not just this idea like we might have of this kind of ancient Eastern practice where someone's bowing before a statue, this is the idol and I'm worshiping. Idolatry is really taking anything, be it statue or anything, and elevating it to a place of supreme or of preeminence. And, and, and so what ends up happening is you take this one thing, whatever it might be, and you elevate it to a place of such importance that your life, your world revolves around it and you worship it in every way. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? It could be anything. It could be from lust, sex, drugs, alcohol, to success, to family, to relationships, but something that that might even be good, but when moved out of its place and lifted to a place of total supremacy, controls your life in a way that it trumps all other things, including God. And you'll make sacrifices to that thing. You say, "What what do you mean by that? Well, maybe it's success. And you'll make sacrifices to that. I must be the best. I want to be successful. I want the biggest business, the biggest bank account, the biggest whatever. And so I will sacrifice relationships around me to devote myself to the pursuit of that thing. I will sacrifice all my time around me to devote myself to that thing. I'll sacrifice all my energies, all my passions, everything around me. I'll sacrifice maybe even certain relationships because I want to strategically place myself with people that can help me get to that thing. And suddenly everything in your world revolves around it. It determines how you use your time. It determines how you use your money. It determines how you schedule things. It determines everything around you. That's idolatry doesn't have to be a graven image in order for that to be the object of your worship. So, all sin in two categories. One is idolatry, something we have elevated even above God, and that is the thing that we pursue. The second thing is pride, which as I thought about this later, I was like, which is still sort of rooted in idolatry, because pride is actually just idolatry of self. It's a self-exaltation that says, I will make 
the decisions. I will be the one. I will be the one who, um, uh, who chooses what's best for me. I will place myself above God. When I, when I read the scriptures and I see God speaking to me, I will go, yeah, but you know what? I'm going to lord over the text, as I said, because God really, I mean, if God loves me, he couldn't really mean this for my life. And why wouldn't God love me? I'm pretty spectacular. So what I'll do is I'll just change that. And surely God would want me to be happy. And suddenly everything about us or ourselves becomes that thing. And then anything that comes against that becomes blasphemy. It's like a sin against how dare you say that to me? How dare you do that to me? And so sins against you become not just minor offenses, but like blasphemies against you. Why? Because you've elevated yourself. You're not in a place of humility submitted before God, but you've put yourself as if you are the graven image, the object of worship the one who is equal or above even God himself. So any sin that we commit falls into those two categories. But the temptation for those sin can come from a couple of different places. I mean, one is it can come internally. The scriptures speak a lot about our heart, that we are fallen with broken hearts, with with a sinful, born into iniquity, as David says, and that the, the scriptures over and over and over say things like, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. And in other words, it's like sometimes there are desires that come up within our heart, whether it be internal dialogues or longings that we just submit to, and we pursue those things that are apart from God. So some temptation comes from within. I need that. I want that. I desire that, and we cave to them. And then some temptations, obviously, can come from outside. I mean, Proverbs talks about be careful of the seductive woman looking to leer or lure a man away, or we would teach our kids about someone who's peer pressure, you know, hey, all the cool kids are doing it, you know, those sorts of things. It's like a fisherman with a lure just trying to get someone to bite that temptation whether it be Satan himself, as we see in the temptation of Christ, or whether it be the person next door, whatever the case may be. But in this context, I think there's one other one that he actually has in mind. I think he's thinking about the people that are, so to speak, within. He's thinking about the false teachers. He's thinking about the people of influence who are leading people astray and leading people to sin. Remember the context. He's speaking to the disciples, but in the presence of the Pharisees, he's been calling them out over and over and over because of the way that they're handling God's word. And he'll say things to them like, you guys, you use God's word, like for example, giving. And you'll go, I give, I tithe exactly what I'm supposed to tithe. I give my 10% or my whatever percent, I give exactly what I'm supposed to be. And he's like, but, but you're using it to gain a following actually for yourself, it's, it's not about pointing to God. It's not about becoming a generous person because God's been generous with you. And in your generosity, you can point others to the God who is generous to them as well. But instead, it became about you. And so you guys, you're going in when it's time to give and you're like ringing bells and getting attention to say, look how generous I am. But it's all about gaining a following for yourself. And you're leading people to a type of worship that is not about actual love for God, but it's about acclaim and it's about attention tension and it's about position and it's about all of these sorts of things that are far from my heart. So with that in mind, Jesus, he says here to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea 
that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And then he says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. So church, in other words, the temptations from within, pay attention to yourselves. Know your heart. Know what your heart's pursuing. Know why your heart is pursuing. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart will guide you, and it will lead you astray, and it will lead you to chase things that are not God. It will lead you into places of temptation, and it will lead you to submitting to that temptation, and it will lead you away. Man, know yourself. Know your heart. Know the temptations on the outside. Know the things that the world is saying to you. Know the things that those even within the church might be saying to you. Be aware of the temptations and realize that there's going to be people even from within rising up to lead you astray. And even think about what some of the words of of Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the early church, and we always tend to romanticize the early church, and, and there was a movement, it's kind of dying down now, although it's still out there, um, over the last 10, 15 years of people who were just like, man, the, the Western church, the way it is right now, it's just too corporate, and it's too this and that, which in some cases may be true, but, but the answer to that that was being given was, we just need to get back to the way it was in the early church, and get back to just little individual house churches, and just get back to the purity of the way it was. Which, which maybe there's some places that are, that are, that are um, legitimate to consider. But to romanticize the early church and to think that there weren't issues back in the day as well is just to not read your Bible. Because in Corinthians, man, Paul's dealing with messes like massive messes. The kind of messes that shirt enti- shut entire ministries down. There's like a guy who's sleeping with, his, with a family member, his dad's wife. There's people getting drunk during communion. There's lawsuits at one another within the church. They're like arguing with one another. There's all this kind of stuff going on. And then in the middle of that too, there's people rising up from within that seem to have all kinds of answers to all sorts of things and are leading people in ways that are not reflective of God's heart. And so Paul says to them in 2 Corinthians 11, he says... I wish you would bear with me in just a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, and in the same way your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus other than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received... Or, if you accept a different gospel for the one you accepted, you may put up with it readily enough. Here's what he's saying to them. Guys, listen, this is such foolishness, but bear with me. Hear this. From the time that I came in and introduced you to the reality of the gospel and introduced you to Jesus, and you, you met the Lord, you became His. You became His betrothed, as we talked about that a lot last week, Remember? But then since then, there's others that are going to come along, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried about you because there's people from even within that are going to talk about a different Jesus or a different gospel. Or just, just they're going to take God's word, and they're going to distort it or pollute it, and they're going to use it in different ways, and I'm worried you'll listen. So as Jesus might say, beware, be on guard, be aware of those. Peter himself would say, and I, this is one of my favorites, in 2 Peter 3, verse 15, he says, 
Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now pause for just a second. I love that. Peter's writing and he's like, guys, look, I want to talk to you about something. Paul's been writing to you about this. He writes in his letters all the time. And I know, I know, I know, some of Paul's stuff's really hard to understand, to which many of us would say, amen. Like, have you ever read anything in the Bible before and felt like, I'm not sure I understand this? Raise your hand. That was predicted in Scripture that we might pursue the heart of God and dig and study and learn from one another and continue to press and pursue. But it is reality. Things are going to be hard to understand. And of those things that are hard to understand, listen to what Peter says. Some things here are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away. He says, look, there's, there's going to be people e- even among you that are either ignorant, which is the best of the scenarios here, or just straight up sinful and deceptive. And they're going to take the Word of God and they're going to twist it, especially these hard things. They're like, man, I don't know how, if I understand that, or, or maybe I don't know if I really like this. That's just hard to imagine that this is what we're actually supposed to do. And maybe they'll say things like, yeah, but is that what God really meant? Does that sound very Genesis 3 to anyone? Did God really say that? Surely that's not what God would actually say to you. And then people begin to twist certain things in the scriptures for their own purposes, for their own following, whatever the case may be, which we could totally do. I mean, it'd be a whole lot easier for us to be preachers of the gospel if we didn't talk about the things that make everybody outside the walls of the church so mad. It'd be a whole lot easier. We could just skip stuff about sex or marriage definitions. We could just skip things about marriage or divorce. We could just skip talking about sin in general. We could just always talk about just the happy stuff. Only talk about God's love. Never talk about things that are difficult or hard or people have a hard time with. And over and over and over in the scripture, that's actually a trait that's ascribed to those that the Bible would call false teachers. Whether they're building their own following out of their pride or whether they're just seeking acclaim Whatever the case may be, he's like, don't do that. Or as Jesus would say, woe to you if you're the one through whom temptations come. Woe to you if you're a teacher of God's word and you're teaching things in such a way that you're leading people into a place of ungodliness. Woe to you if you're a teacher of God's word and you're just picking and choosing what you want to deal with and so thereby preventing the word of God to actually doing the heart surgery that's required of those people. Woe to you if you're twisting things in the Bible so that things that are not part of God's will and word are allowed to stay in the hearts of both you and someone else. Hey, to all of you who listen, be careful. In fact, Peter even goes on to say, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away to lose your own stability, but instead grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to him be the glory. He said, hey, be careful. Know that false teaching is possible, and to deal with that, grow in his grace. Study even the hard stuff, man. Make it a purpose to pursue knowledge of Jesus and knowledge of his word. Beware, but oh, beware if you're the one that's leading them astray. It'd be better if a rock was tied around your neck 
and you were chucked to the bottom of the sea. God didn't really say that. Oh, yes, he did. And he wasn't snickering. Beware. It's a heavy thing to teach the Word of God because in that moment, we are, we're relaying the Word of God. And you guys know that the Scripture, the old, uh, in, in the Ten Commandments, it's, uh, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And when I grew up, Southern Baptist Church, that meant cussing. Don't say any of those words that have God's name especially, and then we added other cuss words to it as well, but that just meant cussing. That's all that is. But you know what? And Sam even said this during worship. God is so passionate in the scriptures about his name. Why? Because his name wasn't just a title. It it was also the expression of his actual character. It's who he is. It's the makeup of what makes God, God. And so for us, whether we're teachers of the word that are actually speaking out the words and character and nature of God, or whether we're the church in general who is called to go out and be a manifestation or expression of who God is in the world around us, I believe you would say the same. Don't take my name in vain. Don't don't write off attributes of my character or change things around and, and present to somebody, someone other than who I actually am. Woe unto you if you do that be so much easier to skip so many things in the Bible or try to explain so many things away in Scripture. But in that way, like we talked about a minute ago, you're lording over the Scriptures instead of the Scriptures lording over you. And when you do that, woe unto you. This is the word of the God who spoke everything into existence. It should be revered. It is holy. It is not to be messed with. And it will last forever. It reigns. Amen, church? So woe unto us in that way as well. But then he goes on in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. Be on guard. Then, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Okay, this is hard. Okay, first of all, the first part to some of you might seem easy because some people like this. Rebuke? I get to rebuke sin? Awesome. Where's my badge? Like, I want to do this. You're like the kid in uh, elementary school back in the day. They probably don't do this anymore. I don't know. But remember, teacher needs to leave the room to go do something. And so someone gets given the chalk and sits on the stool at the front and they just take names for anybody talking. Like some of us love that stuff, right? This is what we're called to do. Now, we within the church, are called to do this. I I need to clarify something, though, right off the bat. If your understanding of the church is an organization or a building, you're not going to like any of this. You're not going to, it's not going to make sense to you, and doing any of these things would be offensive, okay? But if your understanding of the church is that the church is a people, that, that right now you didn't come to church, you are gathering as the church. And that even as you are outside the walls of this building, you don't stop being the church. That this is something living, moving, breathing that God has created after the resurrection as his spirit has been given to those who have been saved. That, that we are the church and part of the church, it, that, of the duty of the church and of the role, the function of the church is that the church also deals with and repels against sin both within, primarily even I would say within. 
And, and one of the ways that that happens is through, it says that you're to rebuke your brother. Now, we're not always great at this. So there's a couple of things that I would say that we make errors in, in rebuking someone. You, you see someone within the church, and they're in sin, they're doing something wrong, whatever the case may be, and you're like, I, I think it's my job to go rebuke this guy. Well, there's, there's several mistakes that can often be made. Mistake number one is, is when instead of going to your brother to talk to him about what's going on, you go to other people and talk about what's going on with your brother. And, and man, this happens all the time. And we'll talk about the sin that that person's in all the while sinning because we're talking with someone else other than following Scripture and going directly to that person to talk about it. So that, that's number one, talking about it rather than talking to that person. Number two is um, I think we make mistakes when we rebuke outside of relationship. Because notice, who does he say to do this to in verse 3? If your what? Brother sins your brother. So that's a close relationship, brother. And it's important because a, a brother who rebukes, if you have relationship already, you know one another, then there, there's much greater likelihood that the person receiving it, even if it feels abrasive at the moment, might have an actual shot at trusting that you're actually trying to do something for their good. That, that it's not just you trying to call them out and look down your nose like you had some spiritual spotlight or you're like the, the morality police, but that you actually care for them. There's a much greater likelihood that they're actually going to hear and receive what you have to say. And too often, too, the church loves to be the rebuker for those outside the church. You know, get out on the street corner with our placards and our bullhorns and just call everybody out that comes by. But in the scripture, over and over and over, we're told to go to our brother. So within community, within relationship. Number three error we make is our rebuke oftentimes is just a straight up sledgehammer. Like just a way of just beating people down. And, and that's not what's designed or what's intended with regards to Christian community. Um, I think we see this best in Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2. Galatians 6 verse 1 and 2, it says this, and it starts with the same word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. It's not about beating him down, it's about picking him up. It's about restoring your brother. He's in trouble. He's entrapped with sin. That there's something happening to him that he's in danger and this is bad for him. It's bad for his relationship with God. He's in trouble. And so your, your goal is not to go, what are you doing? And to beat him down even further. You're to lift him up, to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then look what he says. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is humility. This is what this means. The, the idea is, I'm going to go and I'm going to restore him, but I'm going to do it gently and with understanding because I realize I'm no better. And I'm just as vulnerable to temptation as he. And I'm just as weak as he. And even if it's not in this area, it's definitely in this area. And because I know what that's like and I understand my own proclivity towards failure and I understand what can happen to me as well, I'm not trying to come in and just sledgehammer, just drive the guy further down, but in humility and meekness because I love him and because I understand my own weakness, I'm trying to lift him up that he might be reconciled to me or to family around or to God ultimately. In humility... And then look what he says here. And bear one another's burdens, 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. I have to confess, I've known that verse like forever. When you're in like growing up Southern Baptist Church in North Carolina, there's all the little easy Bible verses to remember. And I remember we even had like alphabet Bible verses we'd remember that would start with different letters. And if I'm not mistaken, B might be, might have been, uh, bear one another's burdens. And so my mentality or the way that I pictured that in my head all along was like, yeah, like if your neighbor has some work needs to be done, go help bear their burden. Do some of the work. Burden, work, heavy load, help them with that. So help them with the lawn, help them with the whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's actually in the context of sin and restoration. And so what it means is this. Hey man, I, I'm, I'm coming to you in humility, and I understand my own weakness, and I've, I, you're struggling here. And look, I, I don't want to just talk to you about the sin that you're in, but I want to help lift you up and I'll even throw an arm around you and help you walk this out and help you figure your way out of this. And, and because I want to come alongside you for your good, I'll bear your burden as well as I'm restoring you to Christ. And so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what he's saying. That's what it looks like within the church community as brothers and sisters in Christ to deal with sin in one another. But now if you do that, if you actually go and talk to the person about their sin, then what do you do do then? Well, look what it says. It goes on. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's easy enough, right? Hey, you're messing up. That is, oh man, I'm really sorry. I I repent. I forgive you. Okay, cool. I I forgive. We're We're all good. But then Jesus pushes it a little further, as he's prone to do. He says, and if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, be super honest with yourself right now. Would you do that? I mean, I know you'll do it right now because you just heard this. Pretend it was yesterday. Would you do that? Seven times in the same day? I'll tell you what I would do. Probably around... (laughs) I'm about to lie. Let me change that. I about said somewhere around time four. Let me just be honest. Around time two. <laughs> I'd probably come up with some sort of like spiritualized reason that I don't have to express my forgiveness and say, look, he's not even, his repentance isn't real. He's not even really doing this anyway. And so, you know what? Come back to me when you get your act together. That's probably what I would be more prone to do. And Jesus is like, no. Over and over and over and over. Forgive him seven times in a day. Think about that. That's a lot, right? Some of you are like, no, I know it happened yesterday. Seven times in a day. That's hard. And I know it's hard because the disciples agree with me. Because look what they say in verse 5. And the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, we're going to need help with that one, Lord. Any, any odds, any bets on whether that was Peter that actually says that in that moment? Maybe so. But in all fairness, if, it was, if I was one of them, it would have been me. Like, seven times in one day? I'm going to need help with that one. In, in, in a super religious culture where people who sin were excluded and excommunicated and kicked out left and right... And there was religious hierarchies and looking down your nose at one another and all this kind of stuff seven times in one day. I mean, we know the 70 times seven, but at least maybe in that one we can go, okay, how far can you spread that many out over a lifetime? But Jesus like seven times in one day, keep forgiving him. And they're like, we need help with that. To which the rest of us would say, amen, we need help with that. Well, verse six, and the Lord said, 
If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see what he's saying? Just keep forgiving and doing all this stuff. Lord, we're going we're gonna to need help with that. Increase our faith. He said, yeah, if you, if you had faith, if you had an understanding, if you really had faith, you'd be able to do this, you'd be able to do all sorts of things. But, but listen, he's basically saying, this isn't like upper level spirituality we're talking about. This isn't like, okay, well, I'm just a low-level disciple right now, and we've only been with you for a little while, and I'll work at that, and that'll be my goal. My goal will be to get to the point where I'm better at forgiveness. He's saying, this isn't something like, man, look at all these servants of Jesus, but oh my goodness, look at that servant of Jesus. He's going, this is what it means to be a servant of Jesus. He's saying like, and he uses this analogy of a servant, and he's saying, look, that Here's the task. Isn't this how you would go about it? And he talks about this making of the meal, all things that were just basic parts of what every servant would be expected to do in that day and age. And he's like, and afterwards, you're not going to go to that person and be like, gold star upon your chest, you went the extra mile. It's like, no, you would, that's just what they're supposed to do. And he's saying, so too for you. Say to yourself, and this is pure humility, we are unworthy servants. We are only doing what is our duty. In other words, he's like, listen, Forgiveness is a base level Christianity 101 attribute. It is fundamental what it means to be saved is that we forgive. Okay, now, in all fairness though, knowing that doesn't make it any easier, does it? Unless you think about what he's saying before. If you had the faith of a mustard seed. If you had the faith of a mustard seed. Faith in what? Like faith that we can do it? That's not the kind of faith the Bible ever calls us to. So what's the faith that he's calling us to? And what about that faith would be so empowering to us that we could do something that's this difficult, that would go this against our own character and our own nature? What, what about our faith can do that? Could you guys put this slide up here? Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should de desire him. He was just a, he's just a kid. Just a kid in Nazareth, like any other kid. I mean, he was just, nothing would stand out in the same way you wouldn't point out some root growing out of the ground. You would just ignore it. Same, he's just a kid. There's nothing special about him. There's no glowing halo over him as he walked around. He just seemed sort of normal. He was despised and rejected by men. Isn't that what's going on even right now in Luke? I mean, the very people in Israel given the job of being mediators between God and man are rejecting him and seeking to kill him. 
and looking for ways to get around his word and to not have to do what he's calling them to do. They're completely rejecting him and he's on his way to being killed by them. In the same way that maybe we reject him and come up with reasons to say, ah, that's not really what he meant and I don't have to do that. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Think about the times that Jesus, for example, would sit on the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem as, the, as they're rejecting him and right as they're about to kill him and he knows it. And what's he doing? He's weeping, going, if you just knew who I am, if you just realized I'm the Messiah, I'm the Lord, I'm your Savior, and I'm your King, the King you've been waiting for, if you just knew, and he would just wept over this. Verse 3 continues, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here, here he comes. I don't, let's look away. Pretend we don't see him. Or, and I, I read it right here, but I'll just look away. Maybe a psalm. Maybe a good psalm this morning would be better. Because that feels convicting. I'll just, I'll just go to that. I don't have to pay attention to that part right now. We don't need to esteem that. Surely, though, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we have faith, we can do this. Faith in what? Faith in this. Faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What do you mean? What I mean is it's a lot easier to go to someone in humility when they're in the wrong when you realize all the times that you were in the wrong before God and yet he forgave you. It's a whole lot easier to consider yourself lest you also be tempted when you remember first and foremost how the Lord has dealt with you through your many afflictions. It's a whole lot easier to forgive somebody even seven times in a day when you think about how many times you have been forgiven over and over and over, and you have sinned against God over, and rebelled against God over, and over, and over, and He just keeps loving you, and He keeps forgiving you, and He keeps pursuing you, and He keeps embracing you, and He carried every one of those failures to the cross. He carried all of the punishment for every one of those failures to the cross, and He died in your place and paid the price that you might live in paradise with Him one day. It's a whole lot easier to express forgiveness to others when we remember how forgiven we are. It's a whole lot easier to not be harsh with people when they sin against you. When you remember that the very sin that they just committed has already been paid for. Instead of approaching someone who's dealing with something and approaching them as if like, okay, that person has sinned against me or that person has sinned here and they need to deal with it, we go, no, 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 no. Jesus dealt with it. And I have faith in that. And in faith... 
I want to reconcile this person to the God that died to save them. And that is a completely different approach. When we look to the cross, that's where the power of forgiveness and restitution and humility and all of those things lie. It's at the cross. If we look to ourselves, it's going to be blasphemy. How dare they sin against me? If we look at others, how dare they do that? How dare they do that? When we look to Jesus, how could you do that? Like, how could you save me? How could you forgive me over and over? And then how can I not do the same? We're going to go to the table now in communion. We want to take opportunity now. Having heard the word of the living God who spoke all things into existence. And here's what I want to say. First of all, maybe some of you are still in a place where you need to exercise forgiveness. You know, in scripture it says that if you're bringing your gift to the altar, before you even give that gift at the altar, you're to drop it where you are and go be reconciled to your brother. So some of you might need to send a text message before you come up. Or go give someone in here a hug. Or maybe you just need to be honest before the Lord and go to your knee and say, I need help with this. Because I'm struggling. The wound is so deep. Or whatever the case may be. And maybe you just need to come to the table and actually hold it, Isaiah 53, in your hands. And go, man, this is his body. And this is his blood, which was broken for me. And in remembering this, that's where I find the power to extend that forgiveness to others. So do some business with the Lord. Sam's going to sing just a couple of songs. You got like 13 minutes on the clock. Like spend some time with the Lord. Spend some time in community or in communion. And then come back to your seat. Stand and worship and praise God for the fact that you yourself are forgiven. Lord, will you move in this time? May your spirit just move and free people from whether it be bitterness or anger or sin, imprisonment, bondage. God, may you move among your people and use this time by your spirit to change us more and more into your likeness as we consider your sacrifice on our behalf. In Jesus' name, the communion table's open. Jesus, you endure my pain. See all because of your love maker of the universe broken for the sins of the